you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew chapter 26. Will you guys join me as we pray? Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, as we open your word to really one of the um, most important parts of the, of the gospels, Lord, the, the place in the scripture, the place in history, Jesus, where you gave your life for us. Lord, we know that this, this day and this hour that we're studying, Father, is one of the darkest times in all of human history and one of the most evil Things took place in this chapter we're about to read. And yet, Lord God, you defeated all of that. Jesus, you conquered sin and death. And Father, we, we give you glory and honor. And Jesus, we ask that the impact of, of what we're reading about today would, would really motivate our lives. We know, Jesus, that we're motivated by our love for God. And it's the love of Jesus that motivates us. It's us responding to this undeserved, amazing graceful, merciful love of God in our lives, God. And Lord, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet, Lord God, you've chosen to love us as your people. And so, Jesus, I pray today that as we read the word of God, that each one of us would understand and and grasp what was taking place in the life of Jesus to say that I love you. And God, we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That means that in the Psalms, that when you see the mountains and when you see the most beautiful majesty that the world has to offer, you you can see those things. And the Bible says that that's testament of the glory of God. It's testament that, that, number one, God created. And I don't care what people's beliefs are or systems are. The Bible says that you can't deny creation when you see the beauty that God created. You know, we appreciate things like, Rembrandt and certain paintings and things that that make it through the century as as art and value Where I came from was in the high desert of 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 southern california And we sat about four thousand feet and we looked back to the west where the sun was setting And, and to our west were the rolling mountains of big bear and san jacinto and sometimes white top And the desert when I moved to the desert, they told me oh the desert is beautiful and the first day I went through was like a hot day in the middle of the summer. And, 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 and it was like cactus and dirty shrubs and brown. Everything was brown. And I'm driving through the desert thinking, whoever told me the desert was beautiful, bump their head. Because there is nothing beautiful about this desert. And then, and then as I lived there for the next 18 years of my life, the, the, the beauty of the desert comes in the horizons. It comes in the sunrise and the sunset. And I'll tell you, there is no more beautiful place on all planet Earth to be in the middle of the summer when it's 10, 10 o'clock at night and it's 75 degrees and there's a cool breeze and you look up and you can see every star in the sky. We hosted a a, a festival every year um, called the Starry Nights Festival. People, teams would come from Japan and China and all over Australia and and every year they they, they come together in Yucca Valley, California of all places in October to to do stargazing because the because it's a it's a desert, dry desert which means it's a dry climate so you don't get all the cloud cover but you you cannot believe what a what a real star looks like sun sky looks like when you can see every star it's so powerful and the Bible says that that declares 
the glory of God. And you can look at that and, and you can just, you know, in your heart, you know that there's a creator. In your heart, you know that God painted a beautiful picture. One of, one of the most beautiful things that, you know, before that, that I, I seen in my life, I, I spent two summers in Alaska working. And some of the, the views in Alaska, I was in the Valdez area of Alaska, and I, I, I can't do it justice. But these big, huge mountains, snow-capped, and they're green as green gets because it's like wet there all year round, almost like a tropical forest. And every part of these mountains, there's these waterfalls that come down just right down the side of the mountains in all kinds of different places. They're, they're, they're green and beautiful, and there's life there, and the, um, just one of the most beautiful sights to behold. And again, when you see that, and you see those types of things, the Bible says that these things declare the glory of God. I want to tell you something, that no matter how beautiful a scenery gets and how amazing those things are that God paints for us, pictures he paints every day. Picasso gets credit and he painted a couple of cool paintings, and yet every morning and every night all over the world God paints the most beautiful paintings that anybody's ever seen with his hand in beauty. And when we see those things, the Bible say they declare the glory of God. But I want to tell you what we're going to see today, it declares the love of God. Because as beautiful as those things are, the one thing they, they, they don't tell us and they can't tell us is the love of God, that God loves you. We know there is a God. We know that God is glorious and majesty and, and all-powerful when we see his creation. But it doesn't speak of his intimacy and his personality and, and who he is. In order to see that, we have to look at a picture we're going to see today of Jesus on a cross. And the picture that God painted to tell you and to show you that he loved you is his son beaten beyond recognition. The Bible says it hid, as it were, our faces from him. Have you guys ever looked at a, at a broken leg or ankle or bone and, and, and you see it and you, you, you take your eyes off because it's hard to look at? That's what the Bible said the people that saw Jesus on the cross would do. They said that his face was beaten beyond recognition. One of the things that happens when you take a lot of trauma to your face is that your, 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 your face becomes black and blue and it swells. They ripped Jesus' beard out of his face and they spit upon him. He, he, would not have been, he, he would have been hard to look at. And as pretty as the pictures are that we paint on the, on the canvas and on the movies of, of, of Jesus hanging on the cross with a crown of thorns and some sweat and a few drops of blood coming down, and not really what happened. But that's the picture that we, we look to because it was the love of God that was on display. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Come on, somebody. Wake up on a Sunday morning. You, you got to let that sink in. Seriously, think of that. You know, the Bible says Jesus, listen, this is the, one of the things the Bible says about God. Now, listen, you have to understand, right? Jesus existed before Bethlehem. You all understand that, right? That Jesus wasn't created or born in Bethlehem. Jesus came out of heaven and he became a man. He became like you and I. And, and there's a Greek word the Bible tells us that Jesus did. The word is kenosis. It, it means in English that he emptied himself. So there's no doubt that Jesus emptied himself. The Bible is very clear. If there's any debate, it's what did Jesus empty himself of? But the bottom line, the Bible says that Jesus was in his kingdom in heaven where he's the Lord, the Bible says when the angels see him, they spontaneously burst out into worship and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Can you imagine? You know, I've shared this before. I've taught this before. And I said, men, imagine if you, how, how would your house be? Check this out, men. When you walk through your house, when your wife sees you, she stops and she goes, oh my, holy, holy, holy beauty, behold. And, 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 then, and then you're like, you know, and then, and then she goes in the other room and she comes back a little bit later. And, and again, she sees you and she, she just like tenses up and just, oh my, handsome, 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 or whatever. And every time she can't help herself but to react to, you, to who you are. And that's what Jesus has in heaven. That, that's who he is in heaven. The angels don't do it on purpose. They, they just see him, and they, they spontaneously just, he's God. He, he's in his glory. And the Bible says they just spontaneously combust into worship when they see him. They say that, that the Bible says that Jesus was, you know, he was a king in heaven. He was rich. He had a palace or whatever a God in heaven has. And it says that, that he became poor so that you and I might become rich. Amen. Amen. You know what I say about that? I say, who does that? How many of you become poor so that somebody else might become rich? How many of you leave a kingdom so that how many of you become sin so that somebody else might become the righteousness of God? And Jesus, he leaves heaven and he takes on flesh. And, and the very things that he created, we use to, 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 to curse him, to torture him, to beat him. You know, the spit that they spit upon his mouth, upon his face when they, when they ripped his beard off and spit loogies on his face to humiliate him. He created that spit. The nails that they used to pound into his hands and his feet, he created those nails. I love the song. It's a popular worship song. I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. And it says, God died on a hill he created. Jesus died on a hill he created. Let that sink in. He made the very hill that he died on. And, and, and that is the Bible's picture of God's love for us. Don't get it twisted because Jesus, um, and don't get too depressed. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't let us get too bummed out. I think there's a reaction we should have to, to the gravity of the price that God paid to come out of his kingdom. You and I live like a human and a choice that he made to empty himself to build a bridge because Jesus, as we read last week, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he has the cup and he says, God, if there's any other way that we can build a bridge between man and God, let's go with that plan. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Let's try that again. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What was in that cup? Your sin and my sin. The wrath of the world that God was going to pour out upon Jesus, but there was no other way. There was no other plan that would reconcile men back to God. Now, God didn't have an oops moment. The Bible says that this was all preordained before the foundation of the earth. That God knew there would come a day where Adam and Eve would sin in the garden and men would rebel. And the the very people that he created for his pleasure and for fellowship and for communion, that they would rebel against him and they would sin. And being a holy God and having a holy kingdom and a holy heaven that that the sin would not be allowed in the presence of God. And so he said, I'll come up with a plan and and, and I will I will redeem these people back to me. I'll make a way so that they can be seen as righteous as I am, as as rich. and, 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 And he who knew no sin will become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God and that we could become righteous in God's eyes. And so God laid out this plan. 
Now, one of the ways that we know that Jesus himself is God in the flesh and nothing less. And again, if you're if, if you, no matter where you end up, where you came from, where you are, there's one common denominator outside of what's biblical truth. And in every ism, schism, cult, opposite of, of truth that's out there, they have one first goal. You have to take the position of Jesus and you have to knock him down just a little bit. It doesn't matter how far down the rung you knock him, as long as you take Jesus off the very top rung of being God himself and you move him down a little bit, then, then it's okay. The cults are happy because they've accomplished what they've done. But listen, never make that mistake. It's a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of life and death. It is the one thing that's a separating issue between us and, and, and other folks. Because who Jesus is, is so important to get that right. Jesus is God himself. Now listen, if God made a plan to save you and I, and, and he sent his son who's not God, let me, let me paint a picture for you of what this creates for the God that we serve. Now as we sit here, Let's say, just, just stick with me for a minute, it never happened because you guys would all shoot them when they got to the door, I understand that. But let's say a terrorist comes in here, he runs in here, he's sweating and he's screaming, and he, he throws a grenade out here in the middle of the floor. And you all panic and freeze, but not me. I jump into action, and I run in the back where my oldest son is sitting, and I grab him. And I run him up, and I throw him on the bomb, and then I get out of the way. And boom, you all look at me like, Wow, you just saved our lives. But you murdered your son. Am I a good father? What kind, what kind of father am I? Thank you. Terrible. I'm not a good father. Because what does a good father do? What does a good father do? He jumps on it himself. He takes it himself, right? Yeah, I wish we could just throw it away. But, you know, if I have to make a decision, I'm terrible if I put my son on the grenade. But if I jump on the grenade, listen, if, if Jesus is not the very God of heaven and God sends his son Jesus to die this miserable, terrible death upon a cross, he's not a good, good father. The only way that it makes sense, the only way that it works is that God himself, Jesus, in the form of a man, has to come and jump on the grenade himself. And God sends his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. And on that day, check this out. Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus, amen. Jesus conquered sin and death. What would you guys do today? <laughs> I ate a donut. <laughs> I got my butt out of bed. All right, let's do some. Let's read some scripture. How about that? So um, what we see today again is a, a march to the cross. We're not going to get quite to the cross today, but we're, we're going to march through and see the process of Jesus dying on the cross. And, and again, his death on the cross is God's picture of love for you and I. God absolutely loves you. You know, I say this so many times, and I want to stress it again. Listen, it's the love of God in your life that, that motivates you. It's the, it's the love of God when you receive it, when you accept it, it's what changes your life. You know, the, 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 the good news, listen, the gospel has to stay good news. The very word gospel means good news. And, and so many times we, we take the gospel and we make it not good news or, 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 or we say, you know, we don't want to be afraid to tell people that, that their, their lives are in sin and people are living in sin and we can't be afraid to preach against sin because it doesn't help people. But listen, as long as we keep it in the context that, that God's grace is bigger than your sin. That God's grace can conquer your sin. That God's grace will forgive your sin. That God's grace will trump your sin. 
And, and God's love, because God loves you, he, he, he's a God of judgment and a God that, that wants to deal with those things. And as a good, good father, he wants what's best for you, so he doesn't want to see you walk in those things. But, but, but in our sin, it doesn't make us good or bad people. There are no good or bad people. We're all, we're all sinners. Every one of us, we all struggle. We all have weaknesses. There, there's not good and bad people. In heaven and hell, there's going to be forgiven people and unforgiven people. And bad people are here and good people here and bad people here and good people here because bad and good is not a criteria. The criteria is we're all bad to some degree. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God's grace trumps all that. What Jesus did on the cross conquered that. And we have to receive that. We have to accept that. And, and, and want, you know, real quick, sorry, I'm getting on a rabbit trail now. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about just real quick. You know, the idea, listen, this is kind of what your friends, this is what the world, this is what happens out there in the world all the time. They, they, they want to accuse us or, or the church of, of turning our nose up at, at sin and, and being um, better than people who are living certain lifestyles. That's not the case at all. They act as if almost like, like the perception out there is that the whole world wants nothing more than just to be in the presence of God. Like, we love God, we, we just want God, we want to be around Him, we want to know Him, we want to come in His kingdom, and we're, they're, they're, they're knocking down the walls trying to get into God's house, and God is like got His legs crossed with His white beard, and He's stroking it, and He's sitting at the gates, and He's shooting people down that, that, that because they're sinners. No, you're a sinner, get away, get away, like, I don't want you. Such a rotten picture of God. Such a, such a bad idea of God. Number one, first of all, the, the, the world is not kicking down the gates that they just want to be with God. For those that just want to be with God, you know what the Bible says? You're going to be with God. The Bible says, if you seek me with, your, with all my heart, you'll find me. Pastor, I tried that. I was, I was seeking God. I was praying, and God didn't answer me. You're a liar. You're lying. It's not true. Either you're a liar or the Bible's a liar, and I think I'm going to go with you being the liar. In love. But the Bible says if you seek God, you'll find him. So don't tell me you sought God and didn't find him. Humble yourself. Repent. Get right. Seek God. And you will. I promise, promise, promise. Find him. All right. Ten minutes. Oh, that's 18. All right. I like it. 18 minutes. Don't turn around and see how much time we got left. That offends me. I'll call you out. No, I'm just kidding. You can turn around. That's why I put a big clock up there for you. All right. Verse 47. That's where we find ourselves today. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to be betrayed. Now, in context, listen, we're studying, and every one of the Gospels does it a little bit different, but we're studying the last 24 hours, 48 hours of the life of Jesus. Now, um, in, in John's Gospel, he starts in John chapter 13 in the last 48 hours of Jesus' life, and we have 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, seven chapters all dealing with the last 48 hours of Jesus's life. Now, Matthew, in the last part of his gospel, he does the same thing, except for he covers the last full week of, of um, Jesus's life, starting in Matthew chapter 20, 21. So we get these details, but we find ourselves right now today in the last 24 hours of Jesus's life. He, he now is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he had just left, we studied last week, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So he's in a place in Jerusalem. He's in a house there with a friend, somebody he knew that prepared an upper room. And him and the disciples spent the evening in there. The late afternoon, maybe they got there about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 
They hung out. They ate dinner. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time in human history. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me instead of what they had done for thousands of years prior in remembrance of who? Before? Moses. And now it's in remembrance of Jesus. So he institutes that for the first time. And what else did Jesus do in the upper room that was significant? He took a towel and he girded himself like a servant and he washed all of the disciples' feet in the upper room. And he set an example of, of servanthood leadership, which all of us as Christians are to follow. And then as they, they leave there, the last, the last verse in John 13, 14, where, where it talks about that, is it says, let us arise and go from here. So, so they're on the east side there in this house, and they would have left, they would have went downstairs, and Jesus teaches John 15 about the, all, about the um, I am the... I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. And Jesus is teaching that um, as he left the upper room on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They would have had to come back past where Solomon's temple was, down the Kidron Valley on the Mount Moriah side, through the Kidron, up the other side of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. They spent time there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested, carried back down the Mount of Olives, up the other side. It's not very big, you guys. There's a picture back there. If you want to see it before you leave, I'll show you. But it's just a little mountain, looks like this, just like this. Mount of Olives here, Solomon's Temple here, Mount Moriah here. And Jesus did this a couple times. He went down one side, up the other, into the garden, back to the other side, over to Caiaphas' house, over to the Praetorium, and then up to the place where he was going to be crucified. And so he's in the garden, and it says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with him, with great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So the word there in verse 47 says great multitude. So, so Judas had already betrayed Jesus. Satan had entered Judas personally. And he brings this garrison of some of the Jews and the religious folks would have accompanied. But um, they brought a, a group of Roman soldiers. Now this, this says great uh, multitude. So it would have been a, 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 at the least 200. At the most 600. A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. It was the biggest group, um, and the legion would have a legionnaire, would be the name, and then a centurion, and all the different ranks that would be uh, uh, the way they would break down 6,000. And so um, the, the group that came was a tenth of, of a legion. So it's a number that's as big as 600. Some people want to argue 200. I don't care what it is. 200 or 600 is a lot of Roman soldiers. But it says a great multitude here. With the others, they come. Without a doubt, Jesus and the disciples would have seen them. Where they were, they were on the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, they're on the side of a hill. And when you look back, you have the greatest view of Mount Moriah, the, the Solomon's Temple, the, the city of David, the old city. You're looking right back into Jerusalem and see everything. And they would have seen, they would have had to have torches. It was at night. They would have been making noise as they made their way down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives on the other side into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, just a quick point here. Um, you know, the, the garden where Jesus went. Now, one of the things that he would have, Jesus, Jesus would have had a little dilemma, a little problem. Because the city of Jerusalem was a spiritual hub. And, and the, law, the law of Moses said that every practicing Jew, once a year on Passover, needed to make homage, needed to come and worship in Jerusalem at Passover, if you were able, and bring a sacrifice. So every year at Passover, the city of Jerusalem would swell. Josephus, who was a, a Roman historian who was writing at the time of Jesus, 
said around this time that it would be common for them to sacrifice 250,000 sheep in offerings at Passover. So So a sheep was a certain number of people could get together and offer a sheep in the temple for their sacrifice. So it's possible 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem at this time. We know there was big groups that were lingering in Acts chapter 1 and 2 when Peter's preaching. But in, in Jerusalem to this day, they don't have anything as a, as a yard. They don't have like you and I, we have front yards, backyards. You want to have a few of your friends over and barbecue? No problem, right? We go in the backyard, we go in the front yard, we barbecue, we hang out, we set out some tables. That doesn't exist in Israel. So sometimes if you can have it, they build them on the house. So people have little gardens. They want to grow uh, rotten tomatoes or unholy fruit or something. You know, maybe they're evil people and they like tomatoes and they, they want to grow them in a garden on the roof or something. They can, they can do that, but it's all on the roof. There's no front yard or backyard. So what, what happened and what's cultural is the people that could afford it would, would own gardens, private gardens. They would fence them in. They put the barbecue in there. They put some chairs, some tables, a bonfire. They get their friends together. And when they wanted to have a backyard party, they would go to somebody who, could, who had a garden. And a lot of these spots on the, garden, on the Mount of Olives were there in Jesus' day. So Jesus had a friend who was wealthy or had means who would often loan Jesus because Jesus often would go to this garden. But again, if the city's crowded, there's people everywhere, the markets are full, and, and Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd, he needs somewhere to go. So they go um, to this private garden, and it would have been, again, fenced in. The disciples could have been there privately, and they spend time there, and they begin to pray. And it says in verse 50, or verse 49, immediately he went up to Jesus, and he said, I get this 48, didn't I? And now, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus And he said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, at this point, uh, Judas Iscariot had already been filled with Satan. Greetings, Rabbi. How evil. I'm making fun of it, but really, honestly, this is one of the the most evil points in human history, really. Because the Son of God is about to be betrayed with an evil kiss. And, And even this word here, there's two different words. You know, a kiss... Um, to greet one another with a kiss is very common in the world today. My, my sister, my brother-in-law, my sister married a guy from Brazil. His name's Ingenio Basile. And I uh, love my brother-in-law to death. He's an amazing person. He's from Brazil, born and raised in Brazil his whole life. And to this day, when you greet Ingenio, it's with a kiss on both sides of the cheek. You know, it's very customary for him. And um, sometimes I try to kiss him on the lips just to mess with him. But no, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. My family's French. And my oldest brother, Sonny. To this day, he tries to kiss me on the lips when we greet. And I'm like, it was cool, dude, for a minute, but you see, you got to calm down. Like, yeah, so French people, my dad's family, they all kiss each other on the lips. But, um, but, but it's customary, right? You see that where people greet on one side and they kiss. And that's, that's what it says in the first part of this. And the second part, when it says that, that Judas kissed Jesus, is a different word for kiss. It's, it's not that friendly greeting. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a demonic. It's a lingering. It's evil this moment in history when the devil himself, who's, who's inside of Judas Iscariot, betrays the Son of God with a kiss. And then it says, but Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? And he said, and they came and laid hands on Jesus and they took him. You know, the other gospel, he tells him, you know, Judas, do well, what, you, what you've come to do, do, do it quickly. And he says, friend, he calls him friend, almost continuing 
Uh, we studied last week where Jesus was continuing to reach out to Judas to give him opportunities to repent and not have to go through with it. And all the way up to the last moment, moment, Jesus gave Judas the opportunity to not go through with what he was about to do. And then in verse 51, it says, Suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So who was that, verse 51? Peter. Peter. The other Gospels tells us that was Peter. Now, number one, I'm going to tell you something about Peter. In order for him to take his sword and cut off the, the, the servant of the high priest, a kid named Malchus's ear, Peter had to have had a sword, which means Peter would have carried a sword underneath his, his whatever they wore, cloak, tunic, and, and, and it wasn't for cutting apples. It was, it was a weapon. So even after walking with Jesus for three years, Peter still carried his weapon. And, and maybe it's cultural and customary and those things of the day, but at the same time, Peter has this sword. Now, just moments earlier when they were up in the Last Supper and they're having this discussion and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they go around the room and every one of them says, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? When it comes to Peter, he says, Lord, I will never betray you. Even if all these schmucks betray you, Lord, I will never betray you. I will even die for you. Peter said that in the upper room. And, you know, Jesus didn't come over to Peter and put his arm around him and say, Peter, thanks, man. I knew I could trust you. I got at least one guy that's a friend. Because Jesus knew that, that Peter would betray him. Now, but I want to tell you, we give Peter a hard time. And so they get, in the, they get up there, and Peter pulls out his sword. He's way out of line. He's probably still got sleep in his eyes. He's supposed to be up praying for the last hour. Jesus just, just nudged him for the third time. He wakes up. He, he realizes what's going on. The high priest's servant is there. The Roman soldiers are there. Peter's half asleep. He pulls out his sword, and he tries to go to war. And we give Peter such a hard time about that, but... The reality is, if the number of Roman soldiers was between two and 600, and Peter's looking at 10 fishermen and tax collectors and his disciples that are not soldiers by any means, he knows he doesn't have much backup. The Roman soldiers are legit. When he pulled his sword out and decided, okay, I'm going to fight for Jesus, he had made a decision in his mind that he was going to die. It was absolute suicide for Peter to pull his sword. It wasn't going to go well. Peter didn't have in his mind visions of grandeur like back in King David's day where, you know, one guy with the jawbone of a donkey killed 600 men. Peter was ready to die. And he was ready to give his life for the Lord in that moment. And his, and his energy and his desire was pointed in the wrong direction. But you know what? Sometimes in our life, you guys, listen, sometimes we have actions on the outside, but they don't reflect the heart on the inside. And listen, I want to tell you, God sees your heart. God knows your heart. And if you're struggling with some sin on the outside or you're struggling with some weakness or something that you know is upsetting to God or you know that it hurts God's heart because he's a good father and he loves you and he doesn't want to see you go through that, if you say in your heart and your life and you mean it, God, I don't want to live this way. God, forgive me. God, why do I keep going there? Why do I keep doing this? I don't want to do that. It's not who I am, Lord. It's not who I want to be. God, help me. God, God, work in my life. God, forgive me. God, change me. And that's really where your heart is and you really are crying out and you want to be right. And then you struggle or you sin. Listen, God, is, God sees your heart. Not that he, I'm not saying he approves of the sin, but I'm definitely saying he deals with it a lot differently. You know, Jesus tells a story in the Bible, a, a parable, and he says, a dad went to two sons. And one of them was playing his video game, and he was playing Fortnite, and the dad said, hey, I want you to go outside, and I want you to do some work in the field. 
And the kid said, Dad, get out of my room. I'm playing Fortnite. And I can't pause it because I'll lose my spot. You know, like, I can't stop. Get out of here. And then he says, the father went into the other son's bedroom. And the other son was sitting at his desk reading his Bible. And he said, hey, son, I need you to go outside and work in the field. And the son said, oh, yes, Papa. I love you so much. I'll be right out straight away. And then Jesus said that the, the, the one son who was playing the video games, he, he, he said in his heart, oh, that was wrong. I, I love my dad. Ah, he put the video game down. He went outside and he worked in the field. And the other one who said, yes, dad, I'm on it. I love you. I'll be right out there. He never went out to work. He said, which one did right? The, the, the first one, right? And what, what was the issue? The issue was the matter of the heart. And, and, and so oftentimes God, right, he's looking at our hearts. And Peter here, whose actions are really, he's messing up, man. Peter's all over the place. He's sleeping when he's supposed to be praying. He's got his sword out when he's supposed to have it away. But, man, I'll tell you what, and we do give Peter a hard time for this. But be careful about what you say about people you're going to meet in heaven. Because you might show up one day and they're like, <laughs> oh, what was that for? Remember what you said about me? So I care for what I say about Peter. But um, Peter, he, he, he has a good heart. He's a man who deeply is in love with God. And even though he's making some mistakes on the outside, if he keeps his heart pure, eventually his actions will follow, right? And, and again, don't, don't, don't let me, don't, don't think that what I'm telling you is you, your actions can continue to be against God and sinful and God just honors it if you have a good heart because what happens is if you ha- if you have a real heart that just loves God and really wants what God wants for your life eventually the heart catches up with the actions and the power of God begins to move in your lives and you stop some of those behaviors that that, that were, were causing you but it happens naturally so Peter's there he pulls out his sword let's see how Jesus reacts when he cuts off the ear verse 52 it says Peter but Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. You Put your sword, blah, 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 for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Everybody say 12 legions. Peter, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. The other gospel tells us, he said, Peter, put your sword away. No man takes my life. I freely give it. Who, who, who killed Jesus? You ever hear the term, the Jews are Christ killers? Or how about the Romans are Christ killers? Is it the Romans and the Jews that killed Jesus? Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus willingly gave his life. And the reality is, if you want to place blame on, on who killed Jesus, then I want you to get out a mirror and look in it. Because you're the Christ killer. You're the one that killed Jesus. I'm the one that killed Jesus. Because the wrath of what killed Jesus was what was in that cup he was praying about in the garden. It was God's wrath. What was in that cup? Sin of the world. Your sin. My sin. It was, it was Jesus dying for our sins. So, so yes, the avenue that, that, that it came through were people of, of Jewish descent and Roman soldiers and Roman leaders. But the Romans and the Jews didn't kill Jesus. Jesus, nobody killed Jesus. He said, Peter, put your sword away. If I want to, I could call how many, how many angels? Any idea how many, 12, how, how many 12 legions of angels is? A legion, again, is a, a garrison. It's a, it's a term for Roman soldiers that they would organize the soldiers. The largest term of, of a group of Roman soldiers, 6,000 in a legion. 
6,000 times 12. 72,000 angels. What, what Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, it's not a lack of power, dude. It, it's not like these guys got me. Oh, they got me. He's like, I, I, I don't have a lack of power, Peter. He's like, if I want to, I just got to make a phone call, and Dad will send down 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels to fill this garden. How tough are angels in the Bible? How much damage could 72,000 angels be at Jesus' side? The Bible gives us one great example. In the, in the book of Kings, there, there's a king of Israel, and, and, and the entire Assyrian army is gathered at his gates. And he overlooks, though he steps out on the wall, and he overlooks, and as far as he can see, the Assyrian army is there for battle, and they're getting ready to come through. Hundred, the Bible tells us 185,000 Assyrian soldiers at his gates. And he begins to pray, lay the request, and they get on their face, and they seek God, and they pray. And he goes to sleep that night, and the next morning he wakes up early, and he looks over the gate, and the entire Assyrian army, 185,000 of them, dead on the battlefield. And the Bible says one angel of the Lord that night went through and had a battle with 185,000 Assyrians. The angel, 185,000, the Assyrian army, zero. One night, one angel, 185,000 human soldiers. So when Jesus says, hey, I could call 72,000 angels to my side, he's talking about some power, right? He's talking about the power of heaven unleashed on this place. And it's, it's Peter, put your sword away. There's, there is no need for that. And then, you know, what's interesting is here, Jesus picks up this guy's ear and he puts it back on. And just a little quick note on that is that, you know, the last miracle that Jesus performed in the flesh was to heal somebody that one of his disciples hurt. You know, I think Jesus is still performing that miracle today. You know, he's healing people that, that his disciples hurt. And that's, that's just the way it is. I mean, we don't want to intentionally hurt God's people, but it happens and Jesus has to heal them. And so Jesus here is healing somebody that Peter hurt. Now, again, you know, for Peter, real quick, on this, this little sword play of his, you know, I, I think, do you guys think Peter's cousin, like his close cousin, was Zorro? And Peter pull, pulled out his sword and was like, and that dude's ear came off. And Peter's like, you want me to do the other one? No, right? That's not the way it went down. Like, Peter took out his sword. And how do you cut a, how do you cut a guy's ear off, really? I don't know, unless he's like Luke, my son, and they just stick out like this. He just kind of. <laughs> just kidding, Luke. Only when you got your hat on, dude, and you're pushing him down. Other than that, you're good. So the, the guy went to take his sword, and he went to split that guy's wig right down the middle. Like he's trying to come right down, right down his eyes. Again, he's half asleep, and he moves to the side, and, and the, that sword just bounces off the side of his head and chops his ear off. You know, when you get a, when you get a head wound... What does it do? Bleeds a lot. You know, maybe squirts. And so Jesus picked it up and he's got the guy's blood on his hands and he puts it on. What do you think the guy was like afterwards? Did that really happen? Wasn't my ear just on the ground? I can hear. Probably blood still on his neck. And then it says, um, you guys are still worried about Luke, huh? He'll be all right. I just didn't know who else to pick on Luke. You don't have that big of ears, dude. 
And then it says, verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide with me 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it might happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitude, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So turn uh, or right there in your margin next to verse 56. You can write Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies of um, Jesus's um, death on the cross. The prophet Isaiah gives us in detail um, the way that Jesus would die on a cross. Let's have the worship team come up. I think we're going to stop there today in verse 56. Um, I'm going to end with Isaiah 53. I'm going to share with you guys what it says. It says, in describing the death on the cross that Jesus was going to pay, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a dry root out of, out of the ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty. You know, Jesus was an ordinary man. He would have looked in his day very common, very whatever he, who he was. You know, if, if Jesus, as some people think, was 10 feet tall, then Judas Iscariot would not have had to kiss him, right? He just would have told the Roman soldiers, hey, get the big guy. If Jesus was, you know, naturally super stand out of his day, beautiful, handsome guy, Judas would not have had to kiss him. He just would have said, hey, go, go get Rico Suave. He's the one in the garden. If Jesus floated off the top of the ground, you know, he'd say, go get the guy that's floating. If Jesus had one of those halos like we see him in the pictures, you know, Judas could have, wouldn't have had to kiss him. He would have just said, hey, go get the guy with the halo. But the Bible says he had no former comeliness about him. You know, what else is a trip about Jesus? The Bible says that he made himself of no reputation. We live our lives about our reputation, about building some reputation of who we are. And it wasn't important to Jesus. He was humble. And he made himself of no reputation. Isaiah goes on to, and, and is going to begin to describe the cross. And he says, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him because he was hard to look at. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we see there that Jesus on the cross, that the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. And that he was going to take your sins and my sins and he was going to nail him to that cross, defeating sin and death. And that he who knew no sin would become sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. You know, there was a, uh, my brother, when my brother became a Christian, there was a, a, a band, a Christian band he went to see. And the lead singer said, he died for you, will you live for him? And it was something else the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, but that idea that Jesus died for me. And when we take that personally, we respond to that question, will you live for him? So let's stand together. And we're going to sing this last worship song. And 
If anybody would like individual prayer, Jay and Allie will be up to pray for you. Lydia and I will be up to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you this, this morning. If, if you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, if you want to get right with the Lord, then we, we give you, we're going to give you opportunity to do that this morning as well. And again, just simply want to ask that he died for you. Will you live for him? Simple question. Your eternity's in the balance. And if you want to live for Jesus, you just say yes to him. You admit that, that, that there are no good people, that, that all of us have sinned and, and gone astray. But there are forgiven people, and we understand we need that forgiveness. And we appreciate and want to receive the love of God that was demonstrated for us on the cross. And so we ask God for that. We just say yes to Jesus and ask him to come in our lives and our hearts, and we give him our lives. So will you guys pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died and rose again the third day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's worship the Lord together. We're up front. If anybody would like individual prayer, and uh, you can come forward.